Well, good morning, church. I am uh, here to re-preach Revelation 4 and 5. So, yeah, I got home last night, and I, I've even got some family who are kind of going through the series with us. And um, when I got home, they, uh, they let us know that they couldn't hear the audio. And so uh, my wife pulled it up, and as we looked at it, uh, there was like this weird reverb and echo. So I apologize about that. Our live stream team here, um, they are amazing. I mean, they are amazing. Our live stream folks, our audio video folks. Um, I'm so thankful for them and all the time that they put in. And, uh, you know, things happen, right? Things happen. And honestly, with the amount of like broadcasting sort of things we've done, live streaming sort of things we've done since March of 2020, which this feels very 2020 this morning, and I don't like that, I'll be honest with you. But uh, what we've done since March of 2020, the, you know, we, we've had some days where there's technical difficulties, but there's been far less than honestly there should have been. You know what I mean? Like, because this crew is so awesome. So uh, things happen, but you know what? Uh, I'm here and uh, happy to be able to preach the word this morning. And we'll leave this up so you can watch it at your own convenience. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a Bible out. You're going to need it. We're going through Revelation 4 and 5 at a pretty good clip, verse by verse. So you want to keep a Bible there or your head will probably spin. Uh, so get that Bible out. And uh, as you do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, I give you praise for uh, just this great day that we have, this great Thursday, and another opportunity to preach your word. And Lord, there may be people watching this that had no intention of watching it. And... Um, and it was all in your plan for there to be te technical difficulties so that uh, they could come in and watch this. I pray they'd hang around and hear about how glorious Jesus is from Revelation 4 and 5. For our church members who had planned to watch it and they couldn't last night, I'm thankful that they're here and they're able to watch it now. And, uh, and for anyone else, Lord, who's joining us, I pray that you just prepare our hearts for your word. Even though this is a different setting, it's a Thursday morning and it's um, I don't have people with me and I'm talking to the camera and it feels very 2020 and all that. Lord, the word is being preached and... I'll only preach it powerfully if your spirit would give me the power, and we'll only hear it and be able to apply it to our lives if your spirit would uh, illuminate the word and, and, and to give us ears to hear. So, Lord, we need you. We need you right now, and I pray you'd be with us. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage in Revelation 4 and 5, uh, it is an absolute jewel, uh, but just a little bit of a review of how we got here, right? Uh, in Revelation 1, we learn that John the Apostle is the one who is doing the writing, and he probably did it as he was in exile on the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of present-day Turkey. And this is addressed to seven actual churches, but uh, we know that it's addressed to more than just those churches in Asia Minor because seven is the number of completion or perfection. So this is addressed really not just to those churches, but to the church that exists in between the um, ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Christ. So in between the first advent and the second advent, if you will, it's for all the churches that would exist during that time. And so we get a prologue, we get a greeting to those seven churches, and then we get this vision in chapter one of Jesus, right? The glorious Son of Man. And uh, and then the glorious Son of Man speaks to these seven churches, which is what we went over uh, over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and, and then, uh, after he speaks to the seven churches, 
uh, we get kind of a, a break and, and a turn into a new scene, and uh, that's indicated by John saying, after this, so after I got the messages for the seven churches, now a new thing is happening. After this, I looked in chapter 4, verse 1. So that is where we are picking it up this morning. And understand that as I read this, what we have this morning is a picture, okay? There, and, and in the picture, you have uh, the centerpiece, right, of the work of art, and that is the throne of God. And then you have all of these images kind of moving around that throne. And my job this morning is to explain those images in a way that is not overwhelming, I hope, in a way uh, that is easy to grasp. Um, I have a job to stay out of the way here as I preach this and let the text uh, speak for itself and be the main show, and then we'll finish with some application. So let me read for us Revelation 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a skull written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The first thing we see in these two chapters is John standing, uh, or, or John with uh, seeing a door that is standing open to heaven. After this I looked, verse 1, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Who is holding this door open? Well, it's the first joy, uh, voice that John heard speaking to him, right? You see him say that. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me. This is a reference to chapter 1, verse 10, uh, where he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then he is commissioned to write the book of Revelation. The voice that was speaking, of course, is the voice of Jesus. And so the same Jesus that spoke to him in chapter 1, the same Jesus from that vision in chapter 1, is the one holding open this door, is the one speaking to him, is the one inviting him and saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The same Jesus holding open the door of heaven here in chapter 4, verse 1, is the same one that was holding open uh, the door of heaven for the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 8, when he said, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And so he is uh, inviting him to come uh, and to see what must take place after this. To see the worship and then uh, to see what is going to unfold out of that worship scene, which we'll get to in a little bit with this scroll and with the seals uh, in, in chapter 5. At the end of verse 2, he sees the centerpiece for the vision which is the one seated on the throne. He says that once I was in the spirit, which probably just means that um, he is taken into heaven by the Holy Spirit or given this vision by the Holy Spirit. Is it in body? Is it out of body? We really don't know. But at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is the centerpiece of this painting that we have in Revelation 4 and 5. All right. It's the throne and the one seated on the throne. Thrones are very important in the book of Revelation. There's 40 different mentions of thrones. In this chapter alone, we've got 25 thrones, right? We've got the one throne, capital T, most important throne, the throne of God the Father, and then you have these 24 thrones uh, around it. So 25 thrones in this chapter alone. Thrones are a big deal. The one seated on the throne is described in verse 3. He has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So what's the deal with that? Well, Jasper and Carnelian were the first and the last stones on the breastplate that the high priest of Israel wore. The, the high priest of Israel was a symbol of holiness to the nation. He represented the people to God and uh, he represented God to the people. Was he an imperfect man? Absolutely. Right? The first high priest, Aaron, he wasn't perfect at all. Right, he, he, He's the one who led the movement to, uh, to form the golden calf and to bow down and to worship this false idol. Right, So Aaron was not a perfect man, but the high priest was a symbol of holiness for the community of Israel. And so the fact that the, uh, the, the colors being associated with the one on the throne are Jasper and Carnelian, which are on that breastpiece, tell us that he is holy as the high priest of Israel is holy. Um, the breastpiece was not armor. It was this elaborate fabric, and it is described as a breastplate of judgment in Exodus 28, showing us that the one on the throne has the authority to judge. 
The stones on the breastpiece of the high priest, uh, there were 12 of them, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The first one's Jasper, the last one's Carnelian, but there's 10 others. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's holy, he has the authority to judge, and this reference to these stones on the breastplate also shows he is God over all of Israel from the first, right, from the Jasper to the last, to the Carnelian. And around the throne, there is this rainbow with the appearance of emerald. Now, rainbows, of course, make us think of the covenant that God makes with humanity and that God makes with Noah, that he will not flood the earth again with a global judgment as he did in the book of Genesis. And when we see the rainbow in the sky, it should remind us that God is faithful and it should remind us that God is slow to anger and that he's merciful and that he's compassionate and that he is patient, right? And so when you put all this together, uh, everything that we're seeing there in verse 3, he's holy, the one on the throne has the authority to judge, the one on the throne is God over his people from the first to the last, and the one on the throne is a faithful God who keeps covenant, who is slow to anger, slow to uh, wrath, and he is full of mercy. Now, around the throne, there are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders with white garments on and golden crowns on their heads. Some people think that these are angels, and I have to say that I, I disagree with that take, and, and here's why. If you let Revelation interpret Revelation, you see language elsewhere in the book that clues us in to these not being angels, but people. First of all, in the Bible, angels uh, are, are not called elders, okay? And here, it's 24 elders. Um, also, who else do we see sitting on thrones in the book of Revelation? Well, as we went through the letters to the seven churches, multiple times uh, the, the churches, even the ones that were in sin, uh, they were told, if you repent and if you hold fast, then you will reign with me, right? If you suffer with Christ, then you will reign with Christ. So we see Christians, his people, overcoming and sitting on thrones in chapters 2 and 3. Even the Christians in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, that he would want to vomit out of his mouth. If they would repent, then they will get a throne. Who wears white clothes in the book of Revelation? Well, in the Bible, you see humans and angels wearing white clothes, but in Revelation, God's saints are wearing white garments on six other occasions. And then there's golden crowns on their heads. We saw crowns being promised to the overcomers in Smyrna and the overcomers in Philadelphia. And of course, those are the two churches where there was, uh, there was no uh, condemnation from Jesus. Okay? And so... It makes sense scripturally for these to be people because of the fact that they're sitting on thrones, because of the fact that they're called elders, they're wearing white clothes, they have golden crowns on their heads. Now, why are there 24 of them? Well, let's go to Revelation 21, verse 12, and we start to get an idea of why there might be 24. Talking about the New Jerusalem, it says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12 apostles. 
There are the names of the sons of Israel who were the chiefs over those 12 tribes, and there are the names of the 12 apostles inscribed in the New Jerusalem. Believing Israel, represented by the 12 tribes, believing the believing church, represented by the 12 apostles. One tree of faith with the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, grafted into God's promise of salvation in the New Covenant. Are these elders here, these 24 elders, the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles? Maybe. We don't know. But the bottom line is, is that they are representing all of the people of God throughout the ages. So John sees the throne. The one on the throne is holy. He is authoritative. He's God over his people. He is um, filled with mercy and he's filled with compassion. And around that throne are 24 elders representing the people of God. And they are clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. So what do they sing? And what is John sing? Well, in verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The flashes of lightning, the rumblings, the peals of thunder, these storm elements are meant to remind us of Mount Sinai. Because in Exodus 19.16, the same storm elements are present and resting on the mountain before the law is given by God to the people of Israel. And, and, and so as the law is being given, he is showing off his awesome power. He's showing off his awesome strength. And his awesome power and awesome strength is on display here at his throne in heaven in the same way. There's seven fiery torches, which John says are the seven spirits of God, right? Seven is the number of perfection, completion. So this is a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit who is there before the throne of God the Father. Revelation 4 and 5 is a very Trinitarian passage because we've got the Father. In a minute, we're going to have the slain lamb. And then we have the Spirit of God who's before the throne of God the Father, and you also have, uh, later on in chapter 5, the Spirit of God uh, who is uh, sent out into all the earth uh, from God the Son. So it's a very Trinitarian passage. Before the Father's throne, there's this sea of glass. Now, verses, uh, verses 5 and, and the beginning of verse 6 together kind of give us a, a really odd combo. And I say that because usually, if you have a bunch of storm elements, you got rumblings of thunder and you've got lightning and, and you've got the wind and the rain and all that stuff, okay? And, and, and there's ocean under it. That ocean is going to be in chaos. There is going to be foam and waves and the roar of the waters and all that stuff. Like when I think of scary things, I think of like being lost in space. You know what I mean? Uh, with no way home. I think of, um, you know, being trapped on the top of a high structure or something. And I think of just like being in the open sea in the middle of a storm. That is terrifying. And usually if there's storm elements and there's water, it is going to be terrifying. And yet, his awesome power and his strength is on display, but in his presence, you have this sea of glass like crystal, right? You think about like walking out in the morning and seeing uh, just like, you know, the Chesapeake Bay and, and or, or if you're driving across the, the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel and you know you're about to go into traffic and you're dreading it, at least you have the beautiful sights to your right and your left. You say, look at it. It's like glass. It's so peaceful. And so here we've got his awesome power and yet we've also got his peace on display. And that makes God totally unique, right? I mean, who else could be this powerful, 
right? Where if you were in his presence, you would have a rightfully have a fearful reverence for him. So who else is, 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 is powerful in that way? And yet in his presence, there's total peace and purity. There is no one like him. And so there's four living creatures around the throne as well. We learn that at the end of chapter 6 and into verse 7. They are full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature is like a lion. The second one is like an ox. Uh, The third one is like a man. And the fourth one uh, in verse 7 we see is like an eagle that is in flight. There are six wings for each of them. And um, these creatures are very much like the ones you see in Ezekiel 1. They're very much like the ones you see in Isaiah chapter 6. Not exactly the same, but they are very similar. And I think a lot of times people read this and they're like, they're so caught up in, you know, who are the living creatures and, um, and, and what does it mean that one is like this and one is like this. And, and, and they get too caught up in the creatures themselves. The creatures are, are, are not meant to draw our attention to them and for us to just focus on them and become obsessed and consumed with them. They reflect to us something about the character and the nature of the one who is seated on the throne. So these four living creatures, as we look at them, we should be saying, what do they tell us about God? What do they tell us about the Father who is on the throne? Well, they're full of eyes all over because they serve the one on the throne who is totally omniscient, who sees all, right? And so they are reflecting the omniscience of God. They have six wings that they use to carry out the will of God, which shows that they are not uh, autonomous creatures who can go out and do what they want, uh, but they are servants of God, and they carry out His will, not their own will. And so their their wings show us that He is the one who is in control. Uh, The likeness of the creatures say something to us about the one seated on the throne. For example... The creature like a lion shows us the authority of God because the lion is the king over the animal world and God is the king over all the universe. The creature like an ox shows us the work of God. If you've ever ter- heard the term healthy as an ox, well, that comes from the, the, the reality that the, the ox is like the most powerful domesticated animal in the ancient world and, and probably in this world too. You're not going to get too many pets more powerful than an ox, right? And you can put an ox in a field, and the ox has a reputation for just being a relentless, diligent worker, right? The the ox is going to plow and plow and plow, an unstoppable laborer. And so this reflects to us the work of God. This reflects to us that God is sitting on his throne, and he is diligently at all times accomplishing all of his purposes and working for his own glory. We sleep, he does not. He keeps working right? Um, We have days where we check out and we're just like, I don't have the bandwidth today. I don't have the mental health today. I got to shut down. I got to stay in the house. I got to draw the blinds. Today's the day to recharge and recover. He never needs that. He's always working. The creature like a man shows us the majesty of God because human beings are the majesty of God's creation, right? He made everything and it was good, but when he made us, Uh, It was very good, and he made us in his image, which means we are intelligent and rational and spiritual creatures, and we are at the top of the created order. We are the vice regents of God. He has put us on earth to rule in his place. Now, we failed miserably at all of this, right? But that is still who we are. The image of God in us may be shattered by the curse of sin, but we are still made in the image of God. And so
so the one, uh, the creature here who's like a man reflects um, God's majestic um, nature, right? The fact that uh, he is at the pinnacle of all things. There's no one greater than him in the same way that there's no one greater than us in creation. And then the creature like an eagle shows us that God is divine. Because eagles, especially eagle in flight, was associated with divinity in the ancient world. And this is saying to us that he is not just God, but he is the only God. He dwells in the heavens, and he is the only God over all the earth. And all the other false gods associated with eagles are not gods at all. God is the one true God. And so, the four living creatures, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is to come. This is the first of four heavenly songs we see in these two chapters. This is very similar to the song that is sung by the angels around the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. In Hebrew, if you repeat a word twice, that was an emphasis, right? So imagine if I was like, I love, love my daughter. Okay, you would say, man, that guy really loves his daughter, right? And that would be me trying to communicate that, to emphasize you, I really love my daughter. But if I say, I love, love, love my daughter, then in Hebrew culture, that would be me saying, I love my daughter infinitely. To, to raise it to the third degree is as high as you can go. There's, there's nothing beyond that, right? Um, so uh, I'm, saying, it, it, I'm saying, I love her forever. I'll never stop loving her. Well, here, as this song is, is being uh, sung day and night without ceasing by the four living creatures, they say that God is holy, 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 the same way that the angels sing that God is holy, holy, holy in Isaiah chapter 6. And by elevating the holiness of God to the third degree, it's being emphasized as much as it can possibly be emphasized by the four living creatures. R.C. Sproul says it this way, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. And so they lift this song up and they are emphasizing the holiness of God to the infinite degree. And in verses 9 and 10, we see that whenever the living creatures start to sing the song, the 24 elders fall down and they worship the one seated on the throne. And then they start singing their own song. So the one song begets another song. The elders sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so they hear about his holiness and they respond by praising him as the one who's created all things, who wills creation to continue. And as you read the book of Revelation, what we see is that in judgment, he is going to uncreate the earth and consume it with fire. And then in redemption, he will recreate the new heavens and the new earth for all of his people to dwell on forever. And that's the first half of John's vision. That concludes it. Now, in your Bibles, you have this 
chapter 5, verse 1 kind of break, right? And so in my Bible, I got chapter 5, verse 1. It says the scroll and the lamb. I got this little heading. None of that's inspired, right? None of that's infallible. None of that um, is put there divinely by God. Those are man-made markers that were put there so that we can organize the scriptures and, and read through them easier. And, and God bless the people who did that work because it's been very helpful over the years, right? We wouldn't know John 3.16 is John 3.16 if somebody didn't label it John 3.16. So we're thankful for that work. However, when we read our Bibles, don't stop and think, well, God wants me to stop here and, and, and there's a break here because we have a new chapter starting. In reality, those chapter breaks are created by man. And this is one scene. And the reason I'm preaching it together is that it's one scene. Revelation 4 goes right into 5. I mean, he says in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We're still in the throne room. We're still talking about the big throne in the middle of the scene. We're still talking about the Father God who is seated on the throne in the middle of the scene. We have not moved on to a new scene here. Same scene. So let's just keep going. The one seated on the throne has a scroll that has writing on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. It would be very rare if a scroll had writing on the front and it had writing on the back, but you'll see that there is uh, this scroll is written within and on the back in chapter 5, uh, verse 1. What that tells us is that whatever is written on the scroll is totally and completely exhaustive. Like everything is on there, okay? And so considering what comes after this, next week when we get to Revelation 6, verse 1, and Hopefully we have the audio right, so I'm not in here preaching about the, uh, the the seven seals next Thursday morning. But next Wednesday night at midweek, when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and we start getting into the seals, okay? Um, as those seals are broken, you are learning about the things that are going to be happening in history until Jesus returns. And, and, and the same goes for the bowls, and the same goes for the trumpets, so from chapter 6 to really chapter 18, you're seeing uh, what the, the world is going to be like in the time between the uh, ascension of Jesus, right, his first advent, and the second advent, the return of Jesus. And since chapter 6 through 18 are telling us what history is going to be like, we can assume that what's on this scroll is God's plan for the destiny of the world. Everything that's going to happen historically um, between the uh, first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, um, the return of Christ, the judgment of the unbelieving world, the salvation and resurrection of Jews and Gentiles as one church, as one people of God, the vanquishing of Satan and evil, the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth, it's all there on the scroll. It's similar to Daniel's heavenly book in uh, Daniel 12 verse 4. And there's seven seals on the scroll, which means it's perfectly sealed, completely sealed, right? Seven's the number of completion. Nobody can break into this thing that is not meant to open it. Now, if you want to see the glory of Jesus in the New Testament, Revelation 5, verses 2 through 4 is one of the first places that I would point you. And here's why. The worthiness of Jesus. Watch what happens here. A mighty angel asks with a loud voice, proclaims, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John says that no one in heaven or uh, on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody. Who, who can open this scroll? 
Moses doesn't come forward. Elijah doesn't come forward. David doesn't come forward. Nehemiah doesn't come forward. Isaiah doesn't come forward. Deborah's silent. Esther doesn't say anything. Peter's not speaking. John the Baptist isn't speaking. Mary, the mother of Jesus, doesn't say a word. The Apostle Paul doesn't say anything. James doesn't say anything. Nobody's, nobody's talking. The four living creatures aren't talking. The 24 elders aren't talking. Nobody is saying, well, I could open it. Who can open this scroll? Nobody can open the scroll. And John just starts weeping and wailing. Because John is commissioned to take what is on that scroll and to deliver it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. How can he do what Jesus has called him to do if he doesn't even know what's on the scroll? Furthermore, John's an old man at this point. He's seen a lot in his life. And he's seen a lot of stuff that probably broke his heart. He's seen his Lord crucified. He has seen his friends die for his Lord. He's been exiled away from the churches that he pastored out on Patmos. Then he gets this letter and finds out that the church in Ephesus that he did pastor and that he loved dearly is struggling and has forgotten their first love. I mean, this, this is a guy who not only wants to relay what is on that scroll uh, to the seven churches of Asia Minor because he's been conditioned to do it, but this is an old man longing for things to be made right. For, for, for things to be set right, for justice to come, for injustice to be dealt with, for evil to be vanquished. But there's nobody who can open the scroll and he just weeps. But I love that one of the 24 elders comes to him in verse 5 and says, Weep no more. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And of course, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, we're talking about Jesus here. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah by the elder because that's a reference to Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. If you read the book of Genesis and you're like, which one of the sons of Jacob is the Messiah going to come from? You would think it's Joseph. Like by far, right? Joseph, maybe Benjamin. You don't think it's going to necessarily be Judah, but it's Judah because God's plan is not like man's plan, right? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are uh, higher than our thoughts. Um, and so here's what Genesis 49 says. Uh, Jacob is prophesying over his son, and he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then listen. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience, obedience of the peoples. Israel might not have expected the Messiah would come from the line of Judah, but once they found out that he would come from the line of Judah, that was the expectation. They were like, the Messiah will be the line of Judah. They knew he'd be the line of Judah. What most of them didn't recognize is that he would also be the Passover lamb. But the time is coming when the the, the, the Passover lamb will return as a lion, triumphant, defeating his enemies, and he will be strong and fierce. He's also called by the elder the root of David, which is a reference to Isaiah 11, verse 1, which says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The thing about Jesus here is he's not called the branch of David. He's not called uh, a branch of Jesse, who is uh, David's father, right? That, that's not what he's called. He's called the root of David. How can you be a branch of David, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1, 1, and also be the root of David? 
How can you be the creator of David's family, but also be in the lineage of David's family? The only way that works is if God crosses the boundary from heaven and comes to earth in the flesh, into space and time, which is exactly what he did. That's the only way that that works. And Jesus is the only one who can make that claim. To be the creator of David and to also be the son of David. Weep no more. Weep no more, the elder says. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Uh, he can open the scroll and its seven seals because he has conquered. And so then uh, John turns his eyes and in verse 6, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. How can you stand as though you've been slain, right? To stand is to be alive. If I was dead right now, I couldn't be standing here preaching to you. You know what I mean? So the stand is to be alive. Standing equals life. But the standing lamb looks as if he has been slain. And of course, this is a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. And then the resurrection of Christ. He died, he was slaughtered on our behalf, and then he rose again, proving that God the Father had accepted his sacrifice for us, and that he had truly paid for our sin in our place. And, and, and so we just heard him being called the Lion of Judah, but we're seeing the lamb work, right? The lamb-like work of the lion here. John Piper says the lion gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. Because Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, he has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. He's got seven horns. Horns equal power in Jewish apocalyptic literature. And so if he's got seven horns, seven equals perfection, completion. He has complete and perfect power. That same resurrection power that brought him back to life on Easter morning is on display here in these horns. And he's got seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Again, this refers to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in all the earth, omnipresent. He is everywhere at once, sees everything, has all knowledge. That's why he is represented by the seven eyes. Just a little sidebar. Um, in the Nicene Creed, there is this uh, little phrase that talks about how the Spirit of God proceeds from the Father and proceeds from the Son. Well, uh, the Western and Eastern Church split over that phrase because the Eastern Church said, no, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but not from the Son. While the Western Church said, no, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This verse is why the Western Church is right, right? The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Anyways, that was a little sidebar, and I didn't talk about that last night. You, you just got that. You got a little bit for free, right? You got a little extra here on this Thursday morning because I've got the time. Uh, but let's keep moving. Verse 7, Jesus does something that cannot be overstated. Like, I, I, I can't make a big enough deal about it. He walks up to the throne of the Father. Like, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He can. He walks up to the throne of the Father. He takes the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Nobody else could do it, but he could do it. Nobody else could take the scroll and open the seals, but he can do it. No one else spoke up when the angel said who is worthy. But Jesus takes the scroll because Jesus is worthy. And so, yeah, these verses... From uh, verse 2 of chapter 5 all the way really down through verse 7, you could say, tell us as much about the worthiness of Christ as any other passage in the Bible. 
He's the one who ends the weeping. He is the one who is the answer to the angel's question. He is the one who opens the scroll. He is the one who is worthy. And what does this do? It just induces more worship. When he grabs that scroll, worship just starts to reverberate throughout the heavens and into all of creation. Imagine dropping a pedal into a little puddle, all right? And as soon as that pebble hits at that point of contact, you're going to see these rings of water and kind of concentric circles start to expand. So the moment of the pebble hitting is Jesus taking that scroll, but it's not a pebble. It's like a big boulder, okay, falling in the ocean. And when it hits, there's just this, um, these waves of water that, that, that kind of go out from it, right? These, these waves of worship uh, that expand from this moment. He takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders bow down in verse 8 and they worship him. They each are holding a harp, which is the instrument of praise in the Psalms. So that tells us they're praising them. And golden bowls of incense, which John tells us are the prayers of the saints. So they're worshiping him and their worship is filled with praise and filled with prayer. And they lift to him a new song, the third heavenly song in verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That, church, is a gospel song. That's an old-timey gospel song right there. You know what I mean? They're singing about how Jesus has died to ransom a people for himself with representation from all nations, how he has made the church a kingdom, co-heirs with Christ who will reign with him on the new earth. He's made the church a priesthood because we offer our lives as spiritual sacrifices to God every day, plus we have a priestly access to God by the blood of Christ. And this is why Jesus is worthy. He is fit to open the scroll because... He has triumphed. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the high priest over the priesthood. He's the redeemer of the redeemed. Nobody else can claim these titles. Nobody else accomplished these things. He is the star of the gospel. This is a gospel song. He's the star of the song. They are exalting him for his fitness to open the scroll. So he takes the scroll Praise starts to reverberate, right? It expands more in verses 11 and 12. Now you have thousands upon thousands of angels joining in to sing about the fitness of the Lamb. Imagine the sound. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The previous song that is sung when the 24 elders and the living creatures fall down and sing that is saying, Lord, you are fit to open the scroll. You're worthy to open the scroll. And then here, the thousands and thousands of angels start singing, and lest anybody be confused about it, about the fact, uh, or about why Jesus is worthy, they sing a song about the inherent worthiness of Jesus. So they're saying, what they're singing is true. You are fit to open the scroll. But opening the scroll is not what makes you worthy. You're worthy just because you're you. You're worthy just because you're the God-man, right? So they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Not worthy is the lamb who was slain because he can open the scroll. Just worthy is the lamb who was slain. So he's worthy because he can open the scroll, but he's also worthy because he's worthy, right? He's inherently worthy. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea all join in. And they sing, to him who sits on the throne... 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So now the praise is extended to the entire universe. Nobody else is worthy to open the scroll, but everybody now is worshiping the Lamb. And I also think it's worth pointing out, lest anybody be confused about whether or not Jesus is God in the flesh. Um, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, verse 12, to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And then again in verse 13, blessing, honor, glory, might, forever and ever. You don't say these things about people that are not God. And in heaven, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the thousands and thousands of angels are not going to say those things around the throne of God about someone who is not God. Clearly, Jesus is divine and he is being praised as God. And so you have one God in three persons, three persons in one God. And we see the one seated on the throne, God the Father. And then we see God the Son. And of course, we see God the Spirit before the throne and being sent out into all the world by the Son. And then the four living creatures proclaim, Amen. The elders fall down and worship some more. Listen, this, what can I say? I get done with these 25 verses and I almost, I, I really like, there's just some passages in the Bible where I'm like, I almost just want to be like, all right, well, let's go home. Because to, to even start messing around with application, I'm like, this is a jewel. I don't want to put my fingerprints on it. This passage is so rich. I mean, what we just went through, there's a lot of meat I left on the bone. I went pretty quickly, you know, like we could do a more in-depth study if we wanted. We, we could take it four verses at a time and, and we could fill up 45 minutes in each one of those sermons. But I don't want to leave you with no application, so I must try, okay? And I started thinking about, well, imagine being in one of these churches in Asia Minor, and you've never heard this before. You've never heard it preached before. You've never heard anybody read these words before. And somebody says, listen, we got this thing from John. And uh, I'm going to read it. And uh, John got it from Jesus. So the Lord is speaking to us. And he gets up and, and starts reading. And you go through the intro and the, the prologue and the, the letters of the seven churches. It's all amazing. It's convicting, especially if you're one of the five churches that got some condemnation. Then you get to four and five. And you start reading about it. You start hearing about it. You start hearing how he's worthy. He's worthy of your life. He, he's worthy of your worship. He's, he's worthy of rejecting the culture for. He's worthy of abandoning sin for. And you start to hear about the praises of heaven and the thousands of thousands of angels. And you think about who's in those churches. Some of the people in those churches were suffering. You know, like the people of Pergamum who saw their friend Antipas get his head cut off for loving Jesus. Right? Um, some of those people were, were, were really hurting. And I think about who's listening to this message this morning. Some of you are the same. You're suffering. You, you, you've lost jobs in this pandemic. You, you're eaten up with anxiety. You're battling the worst of health conditions. A lot of you got family that reject you because you got this relationship with Jesus and this love for the church they don't understand. Um, you have unbelieving spouses and it grieves you. Some of you have unbelieving children and you pray for them every night. You plead with God for their uh, salvation. Uh, some of you are widows and widowers and you've lost the greatest companions that you ever knew on this earth. Some of you are raising teenagers and that is a project and that is a challenge. I don't think I need to say anything else. Some of you are empty nesters and you're trying to figure out how to live life without those teenagers. You are the ones that bleed. You are the ones that cry. You are the ones that suffer. You are feeling the effects of a world that is stained with Adam's sin. And then there are others of you this morning 
your swain, right? Just like in those churches, there would have been people who were swaying. Some would have been suffering. Some would have been swaying. Some of them have experienced persecution, and because of that, they're fantasizing about a life where they don't have to worry about obedience. Some of them, their faith was being choked out by the sins and the desires of this world. And I imagine some of you are the same this morning. The pornography is too easy to access. The intimacy you have with your smartphone is crushing your intimacy with Christ. You've taken knowledge of current events and political stuff, and you've replaced your biblical knowledge with that. You don't read the Bible as much because you spend more time um, being consumed with political information. And if you had to share the gospel with somebody right now, you'd feel really ill-equipped to do it. But if you had to go debate somebody about global warming, man, you're ready to go. Maybe you rarely pray because it's easier to phone a friend or complain on Facebook. You rarely fast because your belly has become your God. You rarely weep because your heart has become hardened by sin. And to both the suffering people and the swaying people, you know what John says? John says, look at what I am looking at. Get your eyes up on the one who is seated on the throne and the, the lamb who was slain but is standing because he is worthy. And, and John would say to us, cry out with the thousands of thousands of angels. Cry out with the four living creatures. Cry out with the 24 elders that he is worthy. And if you are living in suffering this morning, you are going to cry out in reliance. You are worthy and I rely on you alone. But if you are trapped in sin this morning, you're going to cry out in repentance. You are worthy, therefore I can't keep going on like this. I turn from my sin and I trust you again. And you know what? Most of us are probably both of them at the same time. Most of you watching this, you're probably like, well, brother, I got three or four things that are thorns in my flesh and I am suffering and I've got three or four things that God's trying to sanctify me on and he's trying to work that sin out of my life. It's both. I'm suffering and I'm swaying. Well, then you know what? Today, get down on your knees and say, you are worthy and I will rely on you and I repent. And that's really the Christian life every day, isn't it? We wake up and we rely on him and we repent. And he is faithful and just to forgive our sins because of the lamb who was slain, who stands. Because the one who is seated on the throne loved us enough to send him. Because the spirit of God loves us enough to open our eyes to the glory of who he is. Cry out today. He's worthy. This God of Revelation 4 and 5 is worthy. Next week, the lamb starts opening some seals. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the word today, this morning. Lord, I've gotten to preach this twice in the last 12 hours, and um, that's a joy. That's, that's, I'm thankful for it, God. Um, I am. Uh, this has been wonderful this morning. I don't know how many people will watch it, how many people were live, Father. I don't know how many will watch it later. But, uh, Lord, this passage, reading it, teaching it, glory be to you, God. What else can we say? Glory be to you, glory be to you. The one seated on the throne, you are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Lord, um, you are worthy, Father. 
you are worthy. We, we join with the 24 elders and we say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We join in with the four living creatures, the elders, and we say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We join in with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. And we say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And with the four living creatures in Christ's name we say, amen.